This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Goyal joins us right now, our U.S. retail analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence from our BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, to talk about Macy's. Uh, what a quarter Macy's re- uh, reported, Poonin. Uh, the stock's up 4.5%. The average value at trade is up uh, 480%, which say people are trading the stock like crazy today. Uh, what happened? What happened? They had a really good quarter. I mean, you know, I'm, I guess I'm more shocked at the reaction because it was no surprise that 4Q was going to be a good quarter. They had already pre-announced holiday results. Right. Um, they said holiday sales in early January were up 1.1%, but then reported the quarter at a 1.4% increase, which means that January was very, very strong um, to move the dial there. Was, so was, think- it, was it about January or was it about guidance for the, the coming year? Well, the guidance was that sales would be up. Uh, 1%, so flat to up 1%, and that was encouraging. What was discouraging, and you know, the stock opened up about up 7 8%, and then as the earnings call was going on, it kind of lost some momentum there as um, they came on and said that the first half could be down up to 1%. So a little more back-end loaded. I think they're being very, very conservative here. Um, There's probably upside to even those numbers. Well, what's interesting, too, I love this quote in one of the stories, our Lindsay Rupp of Bloomberg News, who covers retail. She said, she quoted Neil Saunders. He's a managing director of Global Data Retail. He put out a note, and he said, while these numbers do not suggest there is a miracle on 34th Street or, indeed, at any other Macy's location, they do provide a little cheer. And I'm thinking, like you said, a lot of the news was out there, but it's a case of, whew, they didn't disappoint again. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's a yeah. little bit of that, right? Absolutely. I mean, when was the last time you heard good things in retail outside of the fourth quarter? It's been well, a pretty bloody space for the me, last. Let me add to that. When's the last time you heard a good thing out of retail that wasn't Amazon? I mean, is, is there a <laughs> yeah. lesson here in competing with Amazon? Um, You know, I think they're still going to have a hard time competing with Amazon. But that said, I think fourth quarter lean inventories, consumer confidence being at all-time highs, unemployment being at all-time lows, at least over the past decade, that's good for spending. And and they're starting to, you know, get some of that. So it's encouraging. So shares of uh, Macy's, excuse me, um, up almost 64% since that early November 2017 low. So we've seen quite a rally. So what's next, Poonam? Um, You know, Macy's back on track. It's Macy's the worst is over, or Macy's still has a lot to deliver? I think a mix of all. I think in the near term, it's promising, a near term meaning over the next six to 12 months, because uh, consumer confidence, as I said, is really high. Consumers are spending. They're up against very easy comparisons. And they're doing a lot in stores, whether it's with Backstage, whether it's with their partnership with Brookfield. They're making progress. They're improving their product, adding more exclusivity, taking it from 29% to 40% of the mix. So a lot's happening in the near term that can help. That said, longer term, the Amazon threat is real, and it's here. Amazon is investing in its apparel business. They're growing it fast, and they're adding 
more private label, which is more competition for the brick and mortars, not just Macy's. What about these off-price locations? Tell me how that's a big deal. Like it sounds like a kind of TJ Maxx kind of uh, strategy here. Yeah, so so the backstage locations, which is not a standalone store, so it's within their existing store, and they've added thirty-four. Uh, they've added forty-five of them, so they're going to expand that to another hundred stores this year. That's and nice. yeah, and what what it is? I mean, they have six hundred and fifty-three Macy's stores, right? So you're going to get to one forty-five, let's say, by the end of the year. That's still a small portion of the chain. Um, it's not you know fifty percent yet. But these stores are interesting because, or this pad is interesting, I should say, because it's essentially what a TJX and a Ross does. It's merchandise from Macy's, you know, that they probably want to sell, but it's also that they're adding merchandise that they traditionally wouldn't sell in the store or one-off buys that they find attractive that the customer would be interested in. They talked a little bit about how in that department itself, Soft Home did really well. You know, Macy's has a decent home business, but maybe that's where they can add some more excitement. As we know, that sector has been doing really, really well for the past 24 months, or not, if not longer. Uh, what about store count? What do, what do we know? What, where, where, where do you think they need to be, and where are they now? Well, they've got 653 Macy's stores as of the end of fourth quarter. I like that quarter. specificity. That's nice. Yeah, okay, it, 653. He loves that um, it's not a round number too, Poonam. I'm just do you know Poonam when I think about round numbers? <laughs> I had this great editor, Gil Rogan, early in my career at Time Inc., and he, I've turned in a story once. I said, yeah, there were 500 people in the room. He's like, get this garbage out of here. There weren't 500 people anywhere ever. There's these round numbers. There's two zeros on the end, it's an, and it's an estimate. It's not real. It would have been 501, but they said, no, 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 we're going to stop at 500. Johnson out. Then that <laughs> would have been the story. Anyway, Poonam, store count. talk to us about so, store so they, count. So they said they were closing 100, right? And they've announced 83 of them. So another 17 left. But last year when we met with them, they, they talked about how only 215 of their stores are in A centers, leaving 489 open for discussion, if not more. So so what does that mean? I mean, I don't think they need to go down to 215. I'm not saying that by any means. But I don't know if 650, 53 is the right number. I think there's still room for some more store closings. I don't expect them to announce any this year, only because they came off such a good quarter and they probably have momentum coming into 2018. They should at least. Um, but, you know, as things start to stabilize, the sales turn positive and the bar resets. And I think, you know, that's still there. It's still out there. They need to close more stores. Well, and it's interesting, too, as you point out, that, you know, part of their value or, you know, is all that real estate that they've got, including uh, the Crown Jewel store in Herald Square, which some have estimated at uh, a value of $4 billion, Corey. Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, Poon, it's great stuff. Poon Goyal, our, our retail analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Yes, indeed. A little Cheryl Crow for you on this Tuesday afternoon. Changes. Yep, that's indeed what's happening to the healthcare space. Ram Siegel is back with us, co-founder, chief executive officer at Click Health, based in Toronto, in New York, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York City. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. We played a little Cheryl Crow because you have a big event going on uh, tonight. Tell us a little bit about it and what it's all about. Sure. Well, this is our third Muse event here in New York, and uh, tonight's really an evening of inspiration, and it's our modern day take on the salons of the Age of Enlightenment, except instead of painters and poets and philosophers, we've got physicians and patients and uh, really some spectacular content. Uh, we're going to start with a conversation with uh, the former First Lady, Michelle Obama. And, uh, She's the First Lady. 
Uh, she was. She was the first lady. <laughs> that is, uh, that is a true statement and, uh, and, uh, and quite an admired one who's accomplished a lot. Uh, we've also got panels on gene therapy, the future of gene therapy, uh, some incredible uh, uh, people speaking on the first ever approved uh, gene therapy for, to cure blindness. So uh, that's going to be an interesting panel. We've also got a very interesting panel on I.O. And all of these are CEOs or chief scientific officers of some of the leading life sciences companies. But we've also got... Uh, tech minds, people like Babak Patriz from Amazon and people like Sri Matabushi who leads the Google Brain team, uh, really talking about how these two industries are converging. And one of the things that we're launching is uh, really in the VR space, and it's a personalized uh, voyage through your own body. This is something we've been working on with the team at Boston Children's Hospital. So imagine a child, after having an endoscope, can now sit down with the physician and their parents and actually watch what's happening exactly inside their body within a VR experience. It sounds really cool. Why is this important? Well, we think empathy is really important in the healthcare space. And uh, some of the things that we've talked about in the past, like teleempathy, uh, we're really focused on getting physicians to feel what it's like to be their patients. And some of the physicians gave us feedback to say, revenge. well, we, it sounds like revenge. We, 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 we want our patients to food? understand what's happening inside their body. Right. And, and, and so this was a, an incredible collaboration with the team at Boston Children's. And what we're doing now is going through clinical trials to show that when people understand understand what's actually happening inside their body in a personalized way, mm -hmm. uh, not just a uh, general video of, of a similar uh, situation, but what's actually happening inside their body, uh, that they become more motivated to you make mean, the you changes mean, they need. That's do you mean that the, the doctor becomes more motivated when they think when they can see it in a different way, or do you mean that the patient needs so, to sort of see what the doctor is doing? So I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, with, uh, with physicians, uh, they're quite aware of the science, but in terms of emotion, we have, so. a, we, have, we have a platform that we call Simpulse, where say you have a Parkinson's patient, it's one thing to know that this person has tremors. It's another thing for us to put a glove on you and reproduce in a clinically validated way uh, what exactly is happening in the patient's body. And then if you try to drink a glass of water, or you try to sh tie your shoelaces with this on, well, suddenly you build empathy because you know what it's like to be this person. But you only get to experience that for a couple of minutes, and this That's person needs to live with that for every moment of the rest of their life. A greater understanding. Tell me, you know, kind of what fast fascinates you and what trends that you see that have really evolved in the healthcare space? Well, I think what's uh, happening is uh, is really that health in, uh, is being digitized uh, and it's happening at an accelerating pace. So all these innovations that have been taking place in other industries can now be pulled into the healthcare space. Is, is it about the data being synthesized or digitized? Is it about the treatment modalities being digitized? Is it about all of it? So I, I think it's a, it's a lot of things. Uh, uh, the digitization is certainly uh, uh, helping with in terms of care, and we're seeing some AI applications that are supporting physicians, uh, whether it's uh, pathology reports or radiology reports being uh, processed by machines. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think that all these exponential technologies are unlocking new opportunities. All the stuff that we just talked about, whether it's Simpulse uh, or uh, the Health Voyager, well, these are things that wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for all the advances that have happened in VR from gaming. So we're able to mm -hmm. pull from these technologies that have been been invented in other spaces and bring them into healthcare. I think the most interesting thing on the horizon is really voice. If you think about voice, it really
really changes everything because we've got this mass penetration that's happened over uh, the last year of these devices into people's homes. And I think with that, new use cases can emerge. Imagine if uh, you're in a hospital. Think about all the effort that's put into uh, compliance. Think about all the efforts that's put into uh, validating that the uh, nurses are trained to be empathetic and proper caregivers. Now, with voice, you can actually analyze all of that. Uh, people's voice signature turns out to be very predictive in terms of their health condition. Uh, and there's also a lot of assistive applications. So I think on the horizon, uh, voice in healthcare is uh, probably one of the most interesting spaces. Ten seconds left. What do you want to ask, Michelle Obama? Uh, well, uh, you know, I think what we're looking for is an evening of inspiration, but uh, she's uh, uh, launching her memoir in November, so I think uh, uh, some of our people will get an early peek into some of the things that made her journey uh, 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 so admirable. I think it's a great mixing of, of so many different things. It should be a, an exciting evening. Uh, Laron, thank you so much. Co-founder, thank you so much for having Chief, us. Chief Executive Officer of Click Health, joining us on Bloomberg 1130. I'm from the Empire State. That's- That, of course, is the theme song for Silicon Valley. No, it's not. New York. New York New will York. never be Silicon Valley. And it's good with that. This is the headline of Garrett Devink's uh, latest article here, a technology report here for Bloomberg, Bloomberg News, on a topic very close to my heart, because I spent most of my life here of in New York. I started a, I helped start a tech business in the street.com in what they started to call Silicon Alley. We were pretty much on an alley. <laughs> and uh, and then I moved to California. I see what Silicon Valley really is all about. And I would right. agree, New York will never be Silicon Valley. Tell me why. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, just, you know, these comparisons are getting a little tired. I think for anyone, whether it's, you know, Toronto or London or Hong Kong, you know, everyone is sort of measured up against this Goliath that is Silicon Valley. Of course, 40 years has been where, you know, the center of the tech industry. But here in New York, it's just a different kind of game. And and the reality is that as the Internet, as technology becomes a bigger and bigger part of the global economy, and every company now in some way, shape or form, whether it's legit or not, is trying to call themselves a tech company. And sometimes that's very real. Sometimes they're still a little bit behind the curve. But the reality is tech will become a bigger and bigger part of New York's economy and the kind of jobs that we have in the city and that kind of thing. What's the what's the back and forth you see in New York between the tech community and the rest of the New York City community that you might not see in Silicon Valley? Right. I mean, obviously, we have these huge industries in New, in New York that just don't exist out in California. So a lot of people who may work in the financial services sector, for example, if they're kind of ready for a change, um, you know, maybe before they would have had to decamp for California. Now there are real startups, real tech companies in the financial services sector and outside that they can go work in. Well, uh, in particular, New York's done some interesting things. Uh, I have a friend who's got a startup company called Stringer, a really interesting mm-hmm. company that uh, uh, compiles videos shot by individuals, whether they're freelancers or they're just people with iPhones, to capture news events. And, and the amalgam, it's a very New York kind of idea about a media business. Right. But they've gotten all kinds of incentives to be in New York State. Uh, um, a lifetime waiver on capital gains from stock, for example, for state taxes. A free office space, even a Bloomberg terminal, mm-hmm. uh, back when uh, Michael Bloomberg, the owner of this radio station, uh, was the mayor of the city. Yeah, I mean, and that you bring up an interesting point, right, which is sort of that back and forth and, and also the connection to the rest of the world and the rest of sort of um, the economy, whereas in Silicon Valley, you know, you have one of the sort of stereotypical criticisms is that they're detached from the real consumer or the real user of some of the products that they're building, and especially as sort of they have their own struggles with the culture that they've built out there, which is very male, very, you know, 
tech, hard tech focused, there's things that they that people say they are missing. Whereas if you live in New York, you have this daily interaction with other industries, with media, with other countries, because everyone comes here to sort of do business. There's advantages you might have, ideas you might come up with that you wouldn't be able to see if you were in That's California. That's such an urban experience. I, I, one of my majors at NYU was was metropolitan studies. And a big part of this was the idea that, that, that this might not be a melting pot, it might be a tossed salad, but whatever it is, you are you are interacting with things that are very different than you on right. a regular basis, whether you're sitting on the seven train or walking down the street. Exactly. What about access to capital? What's different about what happens in New York City? We've got a huge, obviously, financial community, a big part of the backbone of the New York City economy. Um, how is it different versus what happens in Silicon right. Valley, where all these venture capitalists are? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, it would have been harder if you had a very high-risk kind of proposition in New York to maybe raise the kind of money that you could get in Silicon Valley, right? The venture capital scene out there was very competitive, and it was also very sort of you know friendly to risk, almost looking for riskier and riskier things to jump into, right? There was this... The culture of taking those risks and failing and moving on from that failure. Whereas, you know, you could look at New York as maybe, you know, a longer standing and more traditional financial environment that is a little bit maybe more conservative, a little bit more, you know, long term and or sort of, you know, kind of wants to see where the profit's going to come before they put the money in. But of course, as that sort of Silicon Valley culture has grown outside of California, gone to other cities, gone to other parts of the world, you know, it's easier to come by that kind of early stage risk capital. And of course, Silicon Valley is competitive, like I said, and those investors are coming to New York to look for deals here. So it's not like you need to fly over there to find the the good early stage investments anymore. All right. So let me, what about the philosophy of New Yorkers and how New Yorkers are very different kind of people than Silicon Valley and San Francisco people? And I will say that Silicon Valley and San Francisco is very different than it was even five or mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Uh, and it is, it is in a lot of not good ways becoming more like New York. But is there something about the mindset also that will never change? I mean, uh, maybe I'm the right, not the right person to ask because I'm a Canadian from uh, <laughs> That's Toronto. You, so yeah, I mean, maybe weird. as an outside observer, I mean, I, I don't want to start any start any fights here between the West Coast and East Coast people. But you know, of course, people here they, you know. Silicon Valley, obviously, everyone is working really hard. Here in New York, there is those things that we've been talking about. You're seeing new things. You're seeing people come from all over the world, different languages being spoken, that kind of thing. Not that Silicon Valley isn't a diverse place in that sense, but I think there is really something special when you have all these different ecosystems in the world of art and media all in one place. How successful has Silicon Alley here in New York City been? So probably, you know, one thing people kind of are always pointing to is, is exits, right? And really, that's, that's the thing that people How many say. IPOs? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but they're, they're growing. Exactly, exactly. And so, and also, we don't have an Amazon. We don't have a Facebook. We don't have a Google here in New York. And so, although that might be sort of a, an older way of looking at, you know, defining success, it's definitely something that people have always pointed to New York and said, okay, great, you keep talking about Silicon Alley, but where's your big world-beating tech company? But it's become an economic engine here in the U.S., or has it not? I mean, in, the, in New York City. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's grown twice as fast. Uh, the tech economy in New York has grown twice as fast as the rest of the New York economy. So it is becoming a more and more important driver. But I think of part of that is a lot of companies that are, you know, we wouldn't have thought of uh, IMAX, right? A New York company is is a tech company because it's a movie company. It's an old media business. Warner Brothers was based here too, and and you know, but but as it evolves into really being a tech company, every company is becoming more and more involved in tech. Yeah, exactly, and and that's where a lot of those jobs are coming from. But also, it means that the big companies here are buyers of technology. So if you're a startup here, you actually want to be here because the people who are buying your tech are here in New York. This is you know the center of the U.S. economy. Um, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Oh, I just, I th- I th- it's such an interesting topic. I, I think the, the psychological stuff is not to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Joan Didion wrote, wrote really well about this back, you know, even in Slouching Towards Bethlehem and things, where she talks about how in California, people have come to California for generations to reinvent themselves. And they've mm-hmm. come to start over and they've come to, because they have their own sets of beliefs, some of which are wacky. But they have their own sets of beliefs and they want to start over and they want to believe that things can be true. So they start companies that seem ridiculous that where they might not have gotten a, um, a look uh, in New York. But in California, other people like them are there and say, huh, flying cars, that might work. Huh, semiconductors that can, who, you know, who, special bands you wear around your body that will measure how many steps you get. Now, those ideas don't seem as crazy uh, to crazy people in California <laughs> where sensible New Yorkers might uh, look the other way. Right. But- yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. I mean, I, yeah, and as an outsider, I mean, I came to New York because it's sort of the center of ambition. You know, it's where you want to go to grow your 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 career. And I think for a lot of people around the world, they would have looked at New York like that. And then for the last 10 years, they've looked at Silicon Valley Great. like that. Now they're coming back here. I always said uh, uh, New York had the F train. California had the Donner Party. <laughs> but they're kind of the same, same horrible outcome. I have no idea oh, what you're talking about. <laughs> Anyway. Great stuff, Garrett Diving. Thank you. Uh, the story's called New York Will Never Be a Silicon Valley, and it's good with that. We're good with having you as a guest. What a great piece. On the wheel in the sky Man, these media mergers and Sky itself uh, on the block here helping us figure it all out. We're lucky. We are lucky right now to have Craig Moffat join us from uh, Moffat Nathanson. Uh, I think one of the best uh, media analysts ever. Uh, Craig, uh, prove it. To give me, help me understand <laughs> no this deal. Now. Now, now the pressure's on. I better come up with something interesting. Help me understand this deal. What's going on here with Comcast making a bid, uh, uh, going after Sky? Uh, boy, now, now, I, now I'm embarrassed to say I'm really scratching my head over what the appeal is here. Um, you know, I, there are there are a couple of good things for Comcast out of this, not least that it, it finally adds a little bit of leverage to their balance sheet to do something. But I think the the whole market is is struggling with you know after 20 years of telling the investment community that your cable infrastructure is advantaged relative to satellite and now we're finally seeing in the US that the satellite business is going into steep secular decline Comcast is going overseas to buy a satellite operator. And look, B Sky B or Sky has uh, Sky in Italy and Germany as well. They have a lot more than just a satellite TV business. They've got content, they've got a lot of content rights. But fundamentally, the bulk of the cash flow in that business comes from satellite TV. So there's a satellite TV business fundamentally in Europe. And it's, yeah, a, it's it primarily a delivery system, not content. We've seen Comcast spend money, big money on content lately. Yeah, so, it's, a little, it's a little of both, but you, can't, you just can't pretend it's not buying into the satellite business. And that's what people, I think, are struggling with the most. It, and, and, by the way, they're also struggling with this doesn't take off the table the idea that they might subsequently go for the rest of the Fox assets that Disney is bidding for. In fact, it makes it arguably more likely that they will subsequently pursue that. So the investors are worrying that there's another shoe to drop. Craig, our reporting said that it's Sky's technology that first attracted Comcast. And, they, and, and we talk about a trip to the U.K. in November with Dave Watson uh, that Brian Roberts made. Uh, Watson is the head of Comcast Cable, and Roberts suggested jumping in a taxi, going to a mall to get an in-store demo of Sky's products. And our reporting says that they spent at least an hour at a Sky store going through every feature, comparing it to Comcast's own X1 platform, which lets subscribers search for movies and TV shows through kind of a, a Netflix-like user interface and a, a voice-activated remote control. This is according to Roberts. He said this on the call. Does that make sense 
to you? Is that what it's about? Well, it, it, they've said so. And yeah. um, in fact, interestingly, in your own article, they, he also took a lot of advice from a taxi driver on the way over, which is interesting enough. Um, but um, Cab hey, drivers hey. know everything. Yeah. I was a cab driver. Corey was a cab driver. Cab driver. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, it, yeah, look, they, they make a case that, this is, that there is a technology play here, and that's fair enough. Um, Comcast has, has been pretty aggressive in developing their own technology here. Here, they call the X1 platform here in the U.S., and, and that has been both a good platform and, and a differentiating one. It's still, you know, fundamentally you can't pretend that, or let me put it a little differently. I, I, to me, it's a bit like arguing for the cherry on top and trying to ignore the fact that the sundae underneath is starting to melt. So, well, and yeah, there's some fundamental issues with the business. Are there economies of scale that might be at play here, not just corporate overhead, but are there programming advantages, or, or is that lesser so because it's, we're talking about Europe and not the U.S.? Yeah, it tends to be the, the content business. Um, it, look, most of it is, is English language, so that helps. But the content business is, is generally a, a geographically local one. Um, it, it's it's reasonably hard, and you, you can talk about taking Sky and, and European content and putting it on the Comcast platform here, and you can talk about taking NBC content and putting it on the Sky platform there, and there is some merit to that. But at the end of the day, you could have done that at arm's length through negotiations anyway, and, and even when you do it, um, the, the value of that content just isn't that high. You know, the Premier League is an incredibly valuable soccer platform in, the, in Europe, but it's just not that expensive in the U.S. People don't care that much about soccer. And you could take your sports rights and other programming here in the U.S. and you could bring them to, uh, to, to England or to, um, to Germany or Italy. But people just don't care all that much. So they don't sell for all that much when they get there. All right. So where does this leave Disney? Disney shares, by the way, down 4.4%. Comcast are down 6.6%. Where does this leave Disney? Ball is in well, your court? It, it, yeah, the ball is in their court, and, and the market is already anticipating. You could see in the Sky shares are trading above uh, the, the offer, the Comcast, Comcast offer. offer. So the, the market is already anticipating that Disney will make a topping offer for this one. Um, whether that escalates to a full bidding war or whether um, it, it, it just goes to Disney reasonably quickly is anybody's guess. I hope for Comcast shareholders' sake um, that uh, Disney gets it and, um, and Comcast is 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 sort of saved from themselves. Uh, right, well, let me let me let me posit this with just thirty seconds left here. Is it possible? I'm not saying Brian Roberts is Doctor Evil here, but maybe he just wants to jack the price to Disney and puts in a, a low ball bid, thinking that Disney's going to top it, and that way he's going to get Disney to spend more of their cash, and he will be in a relatively stronger position as a result. No, I, I don't think so. I don't think that Comcast would say there is any particular benefit to making Disney pay more. There is an alternative case that he's just trying to get a seat at the table, and that there's something else he wants, whether it's a role in Hulu or something like that. That is, and he's just trying to make sure he's part of this discussion. Craig Moffat, I told you it was great. Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson uh, on the phone here from New York City. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Oh, 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 
Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for a look at your movers and shakers, winners and losers on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser along with my partner, Corey Johnson. Let's kick it off uh, with the S&P 500. 53 names in the index higher today, 452 lower, uh, none unchanged. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Discovery because that stock... Uh, among your biggest gainers in the S&P 500, shares of Discovery up 3.9%, almost 3.9%. We did get some earnings from the company uh, today. Discovery Communications reported adjusted earnings per share. This is before the open this morning for the fourth quarter that beat the average a- analyst estimate. So fourth quarter adjusted EPS, 47 cents a share. That's six cents better than what Wall Street was forecasting. Fourth quarter revenue, $186 billion. Estimate was for $1.78 billion. And uh, company still awaiting a completion of a Department of Justice review in Ireland, still sees the Scripps deal closing in the first quarter of 2018. And I just thought it was nice to note, Corey, I saw that uh, our buddy over at Muffet, no- Muffet Nathanson, who we just talked about uh, earlier, um, s- upgraded this stock to neutral, Discovery Communications, on February 20th, so ahead of uh, their earnings. And as I mentioned, it's the second biggest gainer in the S&P 500, up 3.9%. So shares of IntelliSat, uh, mm-hmm. trading on the ticker I, I. It's a $500 million market cap. Stock was up uh, quite a bit uh, today into the final moments of trading. But for most of the day, the stock was up uh, well, about 47% over the course of the day. I think it finally closed up 28%. Uh, but uh, so big momentum trade during the day. Uh, it was up so much because during the Mobile World Conference in, in Barcelona, Ajit Pai, the uh, head of the FCC, the chairman of the FCC, so he planned to propose the next steps needed to make 3.7 and 4.2 gigahertz band available for commercial terrestrial use. Guess what IntelliSat has? <laughs> 3.7 to 4.2 gig satellite and terrestrial operations in the U.S. So the notion that that is what's known as C-band spectrum. And the idea that C-band spectrum uh, would be put to use and the FCC sees it as something that they want to push uh, is fantastic news for IntelliSat. So the shares... Um, uh, jump significantly on that news that all the spectrum they've acquired may actually be put to use uh, by the uh, with the new focus by the FCC and with the wonderful stock ticker of I I IntelliSat uh, saw a boost in its shares today and as I mentioned has a, a market cap um, of uh, of uh, five hundred call it five hundred thirty million dollars but enterprise value they've borrowed so much money there's fourteen billion dollar enterprise value for that company so they've got obviously got a ton of debt on top of that uh, five hundred million dollars worth of stock I gotta mention O'Reilly Automotive because we had a guest on was it yesterday yesterday who talked about it liked it and I tweeted about it and I explained you, his methodology in you, my tweets you and, did yeah. indeed so check him out at Corey TV on Twitter uh, Orly though the ticker O R L Y O'Reilly Automotive down six and a half percent the number four decline in the S&P 500. Why? Well, AutoZone came out, and they're just at second quarter earnings, a missed estimates, second quarter profit, as I mentioned, missed analyst expectations. Um, and so there was some nervousness about the sector. So we looked at AutoZone peers, and that included O'Reilly, and investors took that name down. As I mentioned, Corey, down about 6.4% today. Alarm.com, Tyson's Virginia company. We don't talk about that much. Uh, They have uh, security for homes and businesses. Uh, There was a news item that crossed just in the last 15, 20 minutes by GeekWire, reporting that Amazon has reached an agreement to buy Ring, which makes home security video cameras and other smart home products. Again, Bloomberg News has not confirmed that, but GeekWire reported that. And that was enough, that report on GeekWire, 
to send shares of Alarm.com falling in the last few minutes of trading today. Stock was only down 1% with the market down about as much. But uh, the stock had been flat on the day. Suddenly that news, that uh, the threat of Amazon, just the notion that Amazon mm -hmm. is sniffing in your direction can send your stock down. And that happened to shares of uh, ALRM the uh, Tyson's Virginia maker of uh, home security products. So check it out, everybody. The Volatility Index Report, a uh, big move up, up about three points, up uh, almost 19% for a little uh, measurement of the move up. The VIX closing at 18.79. That is, we saw stocks lower on this Tuesday. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now, our stock center with his stock of the day. And that would be Lanthius Holdings, Corey. It's a maker of medical imaging agents and products that's based in North Bill Rickham, Massachusetts, near Boston. The company was founded in 1956 as New England Nuclear and later was owned by DuPont, then Bristol-Myers Squibb. The Lanthius name was adopted after the private equity firm of Vista Capital Partners bought the business from Bristol-Myers in 2008. The company went public seven years later. The ticker is LNTH. Lanthius debuted at $6 a share and was a busted IPO for a while. The price dropped as low as $1.76 in the first year of trading. Then it took off, surging more than 13-fold to set a record last month. Today, Lanthius headed the other way after fourth-quarter results were released. Earnings failed to meet analysts' average estimate in a Bloomberg survey for the first time since the company went public. And while revenue beat projections... Sales forecast for this quarter and year came up short of analyst estimates. Put it all together, and Lanthius closed with its biggest one-day loss ever, a decline of 23%. Uh, interesting company, Lanthius. Absolutely. I mean, it's got its niche. You know, we're talking about the uh, procedures that are routinely done, and they provide you know the uh, stuff you have to drink if you're going to have yourself checked out. Oh, and so it whatnot. sells to, to companies like Analogic. Uh, I'm just looking at Electa. I'm looking at companies that it looks like it sells into. Yeah, it, it's definitely a yeah. niche kind of business. That said, I mean, it, it's a niche that has done well for them in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. and it's been reflected in the turnaround in their share price. Today, though, uh, things not going over so well. Those numbers came out late yesterday, and uh, suffice it to say, they were not well received. Yeah, certainly a blip, right, if you look at earnings growth. Sure. Not a good thing. Dave, great stuff. Dave Wilson, our stock editor, with his stock of the day. You can hear it every day at this time on Bloomberg Markets Radio. Uh, always an interesting story. Hopefully a company that we don't know about, that we learn about. Thanks to Dave's hard work. Dave, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.